I, uh, I wasn't in a frat, so um, your uh, dog, dog sitting rent rate just doubled. So anyway, yeah. No, guys, thank you, uh, Adam, Mark. Thank you so much for, uh, for letting me be here. You guys, like, let anyone up here. It's crazy now. I, uh, and who knew Adam could sing and play the guitar? Did you learn that for tonight, like, just to, to fill in? That was crazy. Um, that was really cool. No, um, I am uh, just, yeah, really thankful to, to have uh, this time with you guys. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I get to work with our students here uh, at church. I work specifically with our life group leaders. Big shout out, all the life group leaders, you guys here. We love you. And, uh, and yeah, um, being up here means um, a lot to me uh, for this evening. I think it is such a special and a sacred thing when a group of people gather to hear someone speak about life and faith and God, and um, my prayer for us tonight is that something that is said would be a blessing to uh, your relationships or just how you understand the Christian faith or your spiritual health or something like that. So I, uh, I have a few stories. I'll tell them a little later, but I thought right now we could jump right in. So uh, at Sanctuary right now, we are doing this uh, hyper-progressive thought experiment called Studying the Bible. It's really crazy. We're like going to read the Bible and then talk about it. And last week, Adam got us started by talking about Philippians chapter 1. So if I could ask you, just give me like one minute. We'll set a little bit of backstory for how we got here to Philippians 2, and we'll try to do a better job of understanding why we are still reading someone else's mail 2,000 years later, which is what we're doing when we read Philippians. So where it starts, it starts actually in Acts chapter 16. If you take a look at that, you'll see that in Acts 16, uh, Paul, Timothy, and the gospel author Luke are going on a journey to Philippi, which at the time was uh, kind of a Roman-controlled uh, city-state. It was like a Roman colony populated primarily by retired Roman soldiers and Roman government officials. And Paul Paul, being the rebellious little Jesus freak that he is, decides that this is the perfect place to plant a Christian church. And Philippi was a place that did not have much of a Jewish presence to uh, begin with. And to kind of give a little bit of context is kind of be like opening up like a, a Dodgers sports bar, like right in the Soma district of San Francisco, or like maybe a little more accurately, like leading a civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama in the 60s. Like the point being, you know, this was hostile territory, and this is where Paul planted one of the first Christian churches. And Paul loved to do this. He loved to go around and tell anyone with ears that the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus was actually not in charge, but rather, instead, it was this crucified and resurrected Jewish teacher named Jesus who was the true Lord. And as Paul would learn many times, that saying something as politically subversive as Jesus is Lord was a great way to get thrown in jail. And we don't know exactly when or where Paul was arrested um, but we do know that he was thrown in jail not long after he planted this church in Philippi. And when during his prison stay, someone from that Philippian church brought him a care package, and what we now consider to be holy scripture in this book of Philippians started as a thank you letter to a group of Christians who cared for Paul as he was awaiting either his release from prison or his possible execution. Um, I'm thankful that when I get to preach about Jesus's goodness that I get to go to the Dutch Goose after and not jail. Also thankful that I haven't gone to jail after the Dutch Goose, but knock on wood, <laughs> there's always tonight. So this letter, 
I don't want to go to jail tonight. Uh, this letter uh, to the Philippians, um, something that you'll notice about it is that it's unique among a lot of Paul's letters uh, because the, the thesis of this text is not to correct some terrible mistake that one of Paul's churches is making. You'll see that a lot of Paul's letters do deal uh, in that tone. There's kind of a, you need to stop doing this. But Philippians doesn't really have that. Rather, if you look through Philippians, you'll see that this is primarily a kind of love letter encouraging these people whom he knows personally to live in unity with one another. Unity and humility, I believe, are uh, are the thesis, really, of Philippians chapter 2. And so as we read these words that have guided Christian Christian churches for 2,000 years, remember that there was a kind of intimacy as Paul was writing this letter, that he likely knew uh, the names and the families of a lot of the people who were going to be receiving this encouragement from him. So remember that Paul was writing this to real people, writing this to his friends, rather than he was writing like an essay on Christian morality, right? Sometimes we can see the Bible to be like that. So we'll get right in. Uh, Tonight, we'll look at 11 verses from Philippians 2, because that is a lot and enough. Verses 1 through 4 is about what unity is, and verses 5 through 11 are a poem about how we might attain it. So, deep breath, and then we'll read the Bible. Here we go. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Amen. You know, I... uh, I don't really have like a a title for this sermon, but my thoughts are kind of caught up in this dance between unity and freedom, the kind of unity that that sort of we all are are seeking when we gather in a group like this, when we gather for family, sort of that unity looked at hand in hand with the freedom that we all have as individuals and what we will do with our freedom. And even though we'd all agree in theory, yeah, unity is a good thing, we need more of that, I doubt any of us woke up this morning and thought, like, I want some more unity. You know, we don't really think about it like that, but I would invite us to think about it like this, that unity really is the only way that anything involving more than one, anything involving more than one person can work. And often you'll see, you know, we'll notice the lack of unity more than we'll notice the presence of it. I think we know that in a family or a company or relationship or in a church that when there is a lack of unity, that eventually it will fail. And when marriages or churches or friendships fail, it's usually pretty painful. So I think as, as we study this passage, we'll see that unity among us really is the hope for the success or for the well-being of anything that's taking place that involves more than just you. And even though we all be up for like more unity in our lives and in our communities, I think basically everyone who's ever thought critically of the Christian faith knows that, you know, like Bob Marley type passages like this about the same love and being united by the same spirit is a lot easier to talk about and to preach about than it is to do. 
You know, Christian stuff like loving your neighbor always sounds really good until you found out who they voted for or what they've done or if they chew their food loud or if they snore or if they like, there's kind of like a moral weight to snoring sometimes when it keeps you up. Like, you know, just basically, we're, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just like disgusted by how easily bothered I am. Like people, you know, we can just get annoyed easily. And I think we can notice that unity is fragile, and, you know, if we stop talking about, you know, snoring or chewing your food loud, you know, we know that our differences are important, and often it's our differences that disrupt our unity. And Paul's ultimate hope in this letter is that there could be something, or, or more specifically, there could be someone that could, in real life, could actually unite people with significant differences. And my main idea tonight is that unity is achieved with empathy and sacrifice. Now, if we want unity, especially among people uh, whom we have differences with, that uh, a significant amount of empathy and a certain kind of sacrifice will be needed for us to achieve that. Um, a story about this uh, has to do with my family. Something I'm really grateful for is that I get to have a good relationship with my parents, and I'm especially close with my dad. It's a picture of Nick right here, me and Nick on the top of a mountain in Utah somewhere. I'm especially close to them, and as you can tell, he is a Philadelphia man with a mustache. And just quick side note on that, especially if you grow up in the East Coast, let me know if this is true for you. Um, yeah. Pennsylvania is a dad factory on the East Coast. Like, you could go anywhere. Maryland, Florida, the Carolinas, anywhere. Like, it's just, you'll, half the people's dads are from Pennsylvania. Like, is this real for anyone? Anyone have a Pennsylvania dad? A couple? In the East Coast, it'd be like, whoosh, it would just go up. Um, I grew up in, mostly in Virginia, but... Uh, um, but yeah, so, you know, I think my hot take on this is you want a Pennsylvania dad, but a California uncle. Like, I kind of grew up with the cool California uncle with the boat, you know, has like, has the, like the liquor closet. And he's just like, you have the cool California uncle, but your wholesome Pennsylvania dad. Um, I, have a, I have a European mother, so I'm partial to them. But a, uh, a side effect of, um, or a consequence, I guess, of my dad being a Philadelphia man was that he, is that he has a massive obsession with Bruce Springsteen. And he just, he just loves the boss. He just loves Bruce Springsteen. Like, and th this has inadvertently sort of caused a little bit of tension in our relationship sometimes because I am a massive, helpless, obsessed fan of Kanye West. And it's just tough because, like, my dad just loves Springsteen. Like, my dad regards Springsteen higher than Kanye regards Kanye. If you see, like, what <laughs> the comparison there, it's just the same thing. It's just, it's like him with Springsteen. And you know, even though my dad and I have a lot in common, his refusal to take my favorite musical artist seriously sometimes kind of ruptured, like, our father and son union. Because like most white men born in 1959, my dad finds the things Kanye says and does sometimes to be a little disdainful. Like, it's understandable. And, you know, this kind of existed, this tension, this Springsteen-Kanye tension, it existed until my dad agreed to participate in an act of empathy never before seen in the dad world. And what happened was about a year ago, this guy, bigger Kanye fan than me, came out with a season's worth of podcasts breaking down every song on what is undoubtedly Kanye's greatest album, which is, we'll say it on the count of three, one, two, three, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Yes, yes, I will die on this hill, man. I'm serious. 
Yeah, so guy comes out with a podcast, like, breaking down every note of every song. It was 14 hours worth of podcasts devoted to one album. And like a prayer that I didn't expect to have answered, I sent it to my dad, and I asked him to listen to it. And he did. He listened to every episode. You know, I look at, I look at this, and I think my dad didn't need to know more about some rapper, but still, he listened to 14 hours of this podcast. He spent 14 hours listening and learning about something that someone else was interested in. And shortly after this, I felt like I owed it to my dad to do the same with Springsteen. So I went to the, the used record store up here in Redwood City, and I bought a bunch of Springsteen records. And, like, pretty soon, like, my dad's breaking down Jesus to me. And I'm talking about, like, the darkness on the edge of town. And, like, our conversations on music just became so much more nuanced, so much more enjoyable. And I believe what happened here was that I, I saw this real-life example about how empathy creates unity among people with differences. What I saw was that it was the kind of empathy, more specifically, that creates unity is one that takes each other's differences seriously. You know, I think I would ask, what is the opposite of taking another's differences seriously? And, you know, you could say it's to be dismissive. You know, and when we encounter people who speak and think and vote differently than we do, isn't our reaction most of the time to, to say something or to feel some way like they're less educated than I am? They're less moral than I am. They haven't read what I've read. They haven't experienced what I've experienced. And, you know, honestly, in, in some scenarios, like, that, that might be true. Sure, like, sometimes that's true. But what's just as true is that this attitude that's dismissive of people and their differences will never create unity. Never. In families of small families, big churches, an attitude that, sees another's differences as a deficiency, cannot create unity. It's hard to know for sure, but I read that there are 30,000 denominations of Christianity in the world. 30,000 times one group said to another group, we're not going to go to church with you anymore because we're different. We don't think like you. So for all of us here, I ask, who are you dismissive of? You know, what kinds of ideologies or political views or what kinds of people do you feel like are not worth your time? And to be clear, you know, I don't think Paul is commanding us to, to change our minds all the time just to get along a little better with each other. Because when it comes to the important things in life, I think we'd agree that well-informed convictions are a good thing. I think we'd see that strong leaders who change the world for better often have a few things that they will not change their mind about. And Paul writes... With humility, value others above yourselves. I believe he's inviting us to a mindset that does not see people's differences as a deficiency or as a place where they don't measure up to our level of intellect or morality. I think we'll see in the following verses that as we learn and listen to each other, that it's not necessarily each other who we're trying to, to move towards. It's not that person A chooses person B's opinions, B's and C. It's not that we all shift what we view to be more like each other. But actually, Paul is making it clear that any group of people who are moving towards unity will have their best hope in that if Christ is at the center if everyone is inching closer and closer to having the personality of Jesus. 
And what I love about Philippians 2 is that Paul explains this not with a heavy-handed speak of morality, but actually with a poem about Christ's humility. And that'll be our next section of Scripture. So let's look at that. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the same nature as God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven, on earth, under earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Um, my main idea tonight is, is that unity among believers is brought about through empathy and sacrifice. The story of my dad in the podcast, I showed that the kind of empathy that produces unity among people with differences is one that takes each other's differences seriously and learns about them. And in this poem from Philippians 2, I think we see why Christ's humility was so powerful. And I think what I understand from this poem is that Paul is saying that Jesus had all of the power and the authority and the freedom that the God of the universe has. He's saying, like, think about it. Jesus lived a life where everything he said and did and thought was good and right. Even though a lot of men still live like this today, even when we're not. My sister called me out for mansplaining the other day. I was like, oh, I do that a lot. I need to stop. Um, like, even though, you know, we, we can live as though we are actually at the center of, of good and of, of right things, in the Christian faith, we hold that it is only Jesus, that it was Jesus who was a man who was continually revealing God's personality in everything he said and did. But the great twist of the story of Jesus' life is that he did, even though he had the power to calm the waves and to turn muddy water into wine, he didn't use his freedom or his power to create for himself a safe and easy life that's insulated from the troubles of the world. Rather, Jesus sacrificed his opportunity to live in unity with the Father so that he could show people how to live in harmony with one another. What we see in this poem is that Christ used his freedom to create unity. And the poem also shows that Christ giving up his freedom did come with a cost. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. And I think if Jesus is any kind of a teacher to us, we'll read this and we'll have to see, we'll have to learn that unity with others will almost always cost you some of your freedom. I hope that that's the, like, the most preachy thing I say tonight, but I really believe that that unity with others will almost always cost you a little bit of your freedom. And it's a sacrifice we'll have to make to achieve unity, so... Um, lately in my speaking, I've been trying to do a better job of preaching with practical wisdom and not high, lofty ideas that just sound interesting. And I know tonight it's been a lot of like unity, freedom, like what does all that mean? But um, I worked really hard to come up with two ways, two practical ways um, that we can do this. And so what do we need to sacrifice for unity? What, um, after much hard thinking, what I thought was that um, in communities where there, are, where there is unity, people sacrifice their time 
and people sacrifice their secrets. And I know that last one is kind of juicy, and we'll get to that in a minute, but we will start with the, the sacrifice of our time. Um, I've noticed that in church kind of often when we speak of Christ's sacrifice or how Christ lived with humility, very often we'll fast forward like over all of his life and everything he did and we'll only focus on the cross. And, you know, yeah, I do believe the cross is Christ's ultimate display of humility and sacrifice. But very often, you know, when we only focus on this botched trial of justice and this execution, we can miss so much. We can miss the countless times that Jesus stopped what he was doing and gave his time to the kinds of people who no one else thought were worth it. And we spoke to sick people and blind people and people with bad moral reputations. And in all of this, he was giving his time to people who, in the eyes of the culture around him, did not believe were worth it. And when I see Jesus this way, I can't help but think about where do I see this in my personal life? And I think about our life group leaders whom I work with in student ministries. You know, I get to work with about 40 of these volunteers, and their age range is from 16 to 65. I think that's so cool. And among these 40 volunteers, it's all kinds of people. We have mothers and fathers. We have teachers who have their, their hands full. They're teaching like th- classes with 30, 40 kids in them over in EPA. We have people designing the next iPhone. We have middle school counselors who already spend Monday through Friday with like crazy 12-year-olds. And they come on Sunday and they do more of it. And we even have high schoolers who even in the midst of their AP classes and SAT prep are still saying, I, I want to share my faith with middle schoolers. And the point is, with with all of these people, people of all kinds of of statuses, all kinds of different lives, in all of them, I see that they're saying, you know what, I I have time for young people, even though I might have the right to say I don't. You know, and in a way, like, they do do have the right. They have the right to say, I have other, I have better stuff going on. You know, they spend their time, they give their time to 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds. And, like, I don't know if you've talked to a teenager in a while, but, like, it's, it's just crazy. Like, they do this thing now. They leave their AirPods in their ears while you're talking to them. Like, drive me nuts. Like, what? Oh, that's more of the younger ones. You've never done that to me, Simba. Um, maybe once. You listen to a lot of music. You know, it's just, you know, they have, the, you know, they got their Takis and their memes. And it's just like, and then you see all these kinds of people giving their time because they know that actually it's hard to be a young person in Silicon Valley. And what I see in these volunteers is that very often people who understand Christ's sacrifice for them will often respond to that by sacrificing their time in the most humble of ways. You know, and the product of, of this in this context is often a remarkable, uh, remarkable representation of intergenerational unity in the church. And it's such a cool thing. And it happens because people are sacrificing their time. And so I ask you, you know, who are you giving your time to? I know a lot of us come here for, for work and for opportunity. And, you know, I have a lot of friends work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. And, you know, I've, I haven't done quite that, but like, you know, I think we've all felt just the burnout that can come with giving too much of our time to our jobs that, you know, ultimately won't always love us back, and we give our, our work a lot. So I ask you to, to think about who are you giving your time to, or you could say, you know what, I don't have to. You could say in the eyes of the world, they would say, oh, this person doesn't necessarily deserve it, but it's actually that kind of sacrificing of our time that creates a sort of unity in our community. It wouldn't be there if we didn't. 
And so I'll close with the, the sacrificing of our secrets. And now that I say that out loud, that sounds like something out of the Da Vinci Code. And I don't really like how it sounds anymore. And I wish you didn't say it. But we'll, uh, what should we say? We'll say giving up, giving up the rights to your secrets. Uh, and this, this point, um, it wasn't something I, I necessarily read in a book or learned in seminary. But um, I learned it in my real life just a couple months ago. And as, as a speaker, and especially as a guest speaker, I feel like I have a um, you know, responsibility to get a little vulnerable with you all. So here we go. Nothing crazy. But uh, a few months ago, I had what we'll call an acute situation of human temptation. Nothing crazy, nothing wild. Probably something that all of us have experienced at some point in our lives. And um, the way this came about in, in my life was that I had the chance to keep things so that I was the only one who knew about it. Um, if, I, if I wanted to, I could keep um, this situation a secret. And, you know, working for a church is, is tough. Uh, there's, there's a high moral standard for people, uh, for those kinds of people who work in churches. And I, I just, I knew from the start that if I decided to keep this a secret, um, that it was not going to end very well. I just, I make mistakes all the time. You know, I know I'm the one on stage talking about Jesus, but I mess up all the time. And I was scared of, of messing up in this situation. I mean, the consequences would be pretty big. And even though I'm always, always making mistakes, I'm, I'm really, really happy that in this scenario, one of the first things I did was I called two people who I'm really close with. And I just, I just said, I need to share this just so that I can't keep it a secret, just so that you know what I know. And I'm so, so happy I did this because the moment I shared this with my sister and with a really close friend, this whole thing became so much easier to walk through. And what I learned here was actually a, a much better understanding of what it means to submit your will to God. I think if you've been in church for a while, you might have heard that a lot, you know, submit your will to God and temptations, tough time, just give your will to God. And I never really knew what to make of that until I saw my experience here together with Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, because you see, Paul tells us, if you are united with Christ, it's like there will be a, a product of that that you experience in your real life. He's saying, if you are united with Christ, you will be united with one another. He says, you will have one mind, you will have one spirit. And as I shared my burden with people who I trusted in that moment, I really felt what it meant, like in real life, to be in one mind with your community, which in my case was, was hey, you know what I know, and there's no, there's no secrets here. And suddenly that unity that's described in Philippians 2 became very real for me. And so tonight, I, I don't know what you're walking through um, or what kind of burdens or, or secrets might, might be in your life, but I'm confident that through a life group or through talking to Adam or Mark or so many of the awesome people that are here in this community, that this can be a place where we can share our challenges and our temptations and our burdens with one another, and that we'll start to really experience what it means to be in one mind with your community. You know, as we finish tonight, I'm, I'm reminded that into church, we must bring our differences that we do not leave our pasts or our opinions at the door because to have any kind of a shot at authentic community, we need to bring all of that in here. It goes for here and life groups, any meaningful relationship. We also know that the reason that unity among people is so hard is because it will often cost you a part of yourself. 
It'll cost you the, the right to, to be correct, to be the point of reference for everything. And when we put Jesus at the center of our community, that's really what gives birth to a, a, a community that is truly Christian, not because of some label, but because everyone who walks through the door is doing their very, very best to inch closer to being equipped with a Christ-like personality, that that is, is what must be had for, for unity with, um, among us. And I really believe that as we study scripture passages like this, we'll, we'll see that the ideas and the theology that fill the Bible were always meant to become real things that we experience in real life. I think about, uh, just as it says in John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's like John is saying everything that scripture was supposed to be has become a real person. And this person was Jesus. He was one who sat with hurting and unimportant people. And he sacrificed his time and eventually his life so that we might know what God's love really looks like. And so my prayer for, for you would be that you might experience unity with the people who fill your life through an empathy that listens and through a mindset that is willing to sacrifice our freedom to live at peace with one another. Pray for me. Sorry, with me. You can pray for me later. Uh, Lord, we know that um, living together, that living in unity is hard. Um, God, for anyone who's experienced significant conflict, we know that sometimes it seems like our differences are too great and like they just break the chance to live together in harmony. Um, but Lord, I, I pray that in, in the midst of all these challenges, um, in the midst of whenever it is hard, um, that you would be one to send your spirit, that you would equip us with the same mind and the same personality of Christ who willingly gave away his time, gave away his life because he knew that the beauty, the beauty that would exist on the other side of that. Lord, we are grateful for uh, the sunshine of the past few days, for music, uh, for being together with our friends here tonight. And Lord, we do pray. Uh, for anyone going through a tough time, Lord, that uh, they would know that the, their hairs are numbered and that, and that you know them and that none of us here are alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.